Um, if you were with us last week, uh, you will remember that we are in sort of a, an outgoing series uh, for me of sorts as I seek to cast some final vision, give you some, some big thoughts, important things to remember as a church body. Um, and last week was the first of those messages, and we talked about the importance of a church having a shared mission. We looked at Acts 1.8, and I showed you uh, how that verse is really the, the underlying thrust for our church mission statement that we boldly proclaim Christ and represent him in the world. And I made the case that every church ought to be a mission-minded church. There's really no such thing as a non-missional church. That doesn't exist anywhere. Uh, the natural and comfortable default, we know, is to turn inward and to care about ourselves, our affairs, our services, our membership, and neglect the reality that outside these walls is a hurting world that needs the gospel, needs to be reached for Christ. Christ. <clears throat> Acts 1.8 reminds us that we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when you have a shared mission, Calvary Hills, you will ensure that we're working toward the same goals. So today I'd like to remind us of a new category, and that is a shared love, a shared love. So we covered a shared mission, which is more about doing, and today we look at a shared love, which is more about a disposition of the heart. Now, from the beginning, it's important, I think, to distinguish our definitions of love from the world's definitions. Our culture today might define love as that flittery feeling of butterflies that you get on the first date, or perhaps that sense of indefinable chemistry between two people, or maybe just a really strong like for something. Uh, love has become kind of a catch-all phrase to go beyond liking something. On Facebook, you can like something. That's the blue thumbs up, right? One slot to the right of that is what? You know it. Don't play like you don't know it. Come on, y'all live on there. It's, the, it's that red heart, which is love. Now, does that mean more than like? I don't know. Maybe to Facebook it does. It's to the right. If you're at Coldstone, what is the smallest size cup you can get at Coldstone? Oh, see, don't, again, don't play. Like it. Now, what's one bigger size? Love it. All right. Don't worry about got to have it. You shouldn't be doing that one at the end. All right. Perhaps in, in middle school, you, you remember trying to avoid saying that you loved one another. I mean, you know you didn't, but you tried not to even say it. So what did kids say? Now, do you like like me or do you like 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 me? You, you know, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So... It's, it's no wonder in, in all of this discussion that we've lost some of the weight of the word love, the biblical word. Uh, we live in an informal, casual culture that makes big things small and small things big. And uh, when we go to the Bible, we look at that word love, and it refers to that which is unselfish, sacrificial, giving, and even covenantal. That's sort of the words that the Bible uses to define love. In the Bible, to say that you love someone or something naturally infers a willingness to sacrifice for that thing. That's what love means. To place their needs before your needs is to really love someone. So I want this church to hear a message on love today, but not like you would typically expect to hear. I want to talk about shared love. 
what are the things that if we all love them together will make our church strong and healthy? What are the things that if we love them together will actually unite us together? You see, we're drawn to the things we love. We pursue things that we love. If you love unhealthy things, like junk food or other things in life, sinful things, then you're going to partake in unhealthy things. And likely you're going to group yourself together and create bonds of community with unhealthy people. And so the best question we can ask is, why do I love what I love? So the, the theme of this message is this. We are never more united than when we love the same things. That's not false unity. That's real unity. And I believe the best way to pursue unity is not necessarily to pursue unity. Let me say that again. The best way to pursue unity is not necessarily to just pursue unity, okay? But to simply love the same things. My prayer is that this church would be so united, not by superficial stuff, but by loving the same things. So before we go to God's word today, I'd invite you to join me in prayer before we look. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally open your word to us today. Lord, remind us of your goodness to us. Lord, remind us that you are a God who loves your people and you desire for us to love you and to love one another. Lord, I pray that you would bring that result about in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to share with you, I'm, going to do, I'm not really walking through one specific passage today, which is a little different for me. I do want to share with you the verse that sent me on this journey earlier in the week to think about this. So I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter 3.8. 1 Peter 3.8, though we are going to use a few passages today. Um, you know, pastoral transitions are often contentious. Now, there's no rule that says they have to be, by the way. It's not written somewhere that says they must be. Um, but often what happens is uh, people sense a, a weakness, a void in the leadership vacuum, and, and they, for better or for worse, step in and try to help or, uh, or perhaps to hurt and fill that void. Things can feel unsettling during a time of transition, when a church is without a pastor. And so often we, we do see churches turning on themselves, factions forming, power groups forming. So how does a church stave off such temptations to sin like that? Well, God used 1 Peter 3.8 to help me get the right words to say to you this week. Peter has been giving an encouragement to those persecuted Christians those scattered exiles. He encourages in this letter husbands and wives and their relationship to one another, and then he begins to speak to the broad congregation about how we are to relate to one another. And you'll see in verse 8, he says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, there's a lot of great Greek study right there. I'll tell you guys, if you enjoy a Greek commentary, this is a fun verse. Peter calls on the church saying, 
all of you. He says everybody. He doesn't say some of you. He doesn't say to all the spiritual people, listen up, and all those who are going to disobey anyway, just you don't even listen to this. This isn't for you. No, he says everybody, all of you have unity of mind. Now, that's a Greek word, homophron, meaning the same mind. Now, as a Westerner, that just hurts my little individualistic soul. I'm going to tell you, it does. The mind of a Christian is generally to be the, the same mind of another Christian. There aren't supposed to be wildly different, drastically contrasting expressions of the Christian life. To say that your Christian life can look exactly opposite of mine is not supposed to be a thing. It's not real. Churches aren't even supposed to be wildly dissimilar from one another. I always laugh when churches talk about their unique vision. I'm like, well, I hope it ain't that unique. It should look like what the Bible says, right? We are supposed to have a unity of mind, not a hive mind, not a cult mind, but unified in the way that we think, unified in our spirits. Now, in case you're thinking, what does that look like? What does that entail? Those are good questions. Well, this verse gives qualities that we are all supposed to have. It builds on this. It says, have sympathy. Now, you've been in the Hallmark aisle one too many times. This word gets watered down. But here's what it means. The Greek sympathes, it takes the word for suffering, which is pasco. By the way, the root of the word paschal lamb, the word pasco, and adds the prefix sim, S-Y-M, to the front, meaning to work together in suffering. That's what the word sympathy means. We are to suffer together. Next, we are all to have brotherly love, which, yes, you were waiting on this all day, is the Greek Philadelphos. In West Philadelphos, born and raised. On plague. <clears throat> yes, that is a family-like love. It's love shared by close family members. That feeling that you have for your blood relatives that you stand next to in hard times, that is what we should be extending, not to just our family, but to our church family. We are to have, next word is tender hearts. That's the word for affection and compassion. It is the opposite of hard-heartedness. You know, there ought to be a warmth that we have for one another when we see each other. Not cold, distanced feelings. No church ought to be marked by passive-aggressive comments or trying to hurt each other or a lack of compassion when someone struggles or, or suffers. We aren't supposed to come in and sit in our pews and blankly stare forward until the first song starts. You know that's not how it's supposed to be, right? You know you can get up and walk around and say hey to people, shake hands, talk to people. That's a healthy church. Not to just come in, say, I'm, I'm here to check my box and sit in your, your chair and just stare forward and pray to sweet death that no one talks to you. That's not what you're supposed to do. Peter says, everyone, whether it be men, women, young, old, you must be tender-hearted. Now, you might say, well, I'm just not like that, Pastor. Well, tell it to Peter. He said, be tender-hearted, meaning a real warmth toward people. You have to have a warmth toward people in the body. And last on this list is humble minds. Taipei nephron, that's a good Greek word, takes the word for humility, makes it into a mindset. We are all to be humble people, knowing that none of this exists for our glory, but for the glory of Christ alone. 
He is why all of this exists. It's his church. As we work and operate and meet and gather, we are to have minds saturated by humility, not seeing the church as some opportunity to be leveraged for our power, but uh, to leverage it for the glory of God. And so as I read this verse, I thought about each word. Unified mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. I thought, man, that's, that's a great list. How do we get that? Because Peter is basically commanding the church, have it. All of you, have it. Do it now. Humble minds, go. You know, like, okay, how do we do that? That sounds really good. How do we do that? Well, I think the answer is found in that which we love. We are always moving toward that which we love. And so I have a list that I want to give you regarding three loves that if we all share, I believe will bring this kind of 1 Peter 3, 8 unity in any church, and especially our church. Number one, a strong church loves God. Loves God. I know your mind is blown. You didn't see that coming. That's the deepest thing you've ever heard in church your whole life. Now, when I say God, for the record, I do mean Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm referring to the Godhead. So we are to not just love the Father. We are to love Father, Son, and Spirit. You would perhaps be surprised. <clears throat> I hope I don't hurt anybody's perfect vision of, of churches. But you would be surprised to learn that there are those who attend churches who do not really love God. And you might ask, well, why? How? Well, why would a person attend a church if they didn't love God? Well, it could be for social reasons. It could be for networking business-wise. It could be for cultural expectations. We are kind of in the South. To please your family. Maybe your grandma's just been on your case about go, going back to church and you did it. Maybe to gain a status in this place that you could not receive elsewhere in the world. Maybe it's to give your kids just a general stability, a general morality. Or maybe it's just you've always gone. Your mom, dad raised you in church. You just kind of always gone and you never thought about why. You know, that's a lot of people. But the Bible reason for why we're here is because we're supposed to love God and, and desire a relationship with him. That's at the heart of everything. Deuteronomy 6.5, the cornerstone verse for the Old Testament, the law summed up in this, in this word, uh, 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love the Lord your God. Under everything we do, there must be a love of God. It must be the passion that drives us to even participate in the mission that we talked about last week. 1 Corinthians 13 famously says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Can I add one more thing to that list? Not to scripture, just to, you know, we're talking, right? If I stay busy and I work a lot in the church and I go on mission, but I don't do it because I love God, I've done nothing. You know, when you love someone or something, 
You don't have to be browbeaten into talking about it. Sometimes I think we don't have an evangelism problem. We have a love problem. Each of you have something in your life that you are masterful at finding a way to bring it into conversation. It's always interesting, isn't it? You know, you have that one person in your mind when you see them coming. All right, we're getting ready to talk about crocheting. Get ready. You know, you have that person. You just, you know, it's coming. There's that thing that you can find a way to get there. Music, politics, sports, movies, your favorite restaurants, travel, hobbies. There are people in your life that you just know. If we're talking, we're talking about this. You don't have to, to make me talk about Tennessee football. I'm a, I'm a go big orange, Rocky Top, Vols fan, all right? You don't have to force me to talk about Lord of the Rings. I, I find a way to get it in about 25% of my sermons, right? It's in there. You don't have to make me. You know why? Because I love that stuff. I just, I want to talk about it. If you love God, you want him to be shared all over the face of the earth because you love him. Psalm 8.1, you know this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You want that to happen? Is that what you want more than anything? Would you love for that to happen? You know what Christians should want more than anything? The glory of God to fill this earth. And everything we do as Christians ought to be contributing to that cause. That's why the church even exists. Our evangelism and our missions serve the high aim to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, yes, for ourselves, but also for as many people as possible. The deepest motivation we have as a church is for the glory of God to be made manifest in this world, and we engage him best when we deeply love and worship our God. When we love and worship him, our hearts will be turned towards him. Everything will be an expression of our love for him. So Calvary Hills, it's my deep prayer that we would love God together, that this would be a shared love that we all have. That's number one. Secondly, a strong church, number two, loves sound theology. Loves sound theology. Hope my Sunday school teachers will amen me here. All right, thank you. He starts to mention, um, I'm actually going to have us look at Titus 1 now, in Titus 1. Um, sort of where chapter 1 ends and runs into the beginning of chapter 2. Paul wrote this letter to encourage Titus who was trying to lead and turn around and revitalize and start churches on Crete, the island. It was a very difficult place. He starts to mention in Titus 1 that, that there were those in this church where Titus was going who were insubordinate. All right? He's, you can read all these in 1 Timothy 1. Insubordinate, that means rebellious towards your leadership. They were empty talkers. That means, you ever known somebody that just flapped their lips and they talked, and then afterwards you're like, I have no idea what you just said. All right, there were those people who were gaining authority and, and using their time on the, on the platform to say things like that. There were those who were deceivers. That means they weren't just empty talking. They knew what they were saying, and it was bad on purpose. They were deceiving. There were those who got into discussing endless myths. 
Somebody who just finds the most minute detail of something that's not the main idea, and they just, you, you can't get them off of it. It's like they keep going back to the same point over and over. It's like, dude, move on, move on. That person. That was what the church was full of in Crete. You can imagine how hard it would be to minister to a church where that was, that was the congregation. And that's what Titus was going into. And Paul gives an encouragement. Here's what I want you to do. When you go into this church and you get ready to deal with them, here's what I want you to do. Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You know, another another. Definition for that word is healthy. Maybe your Bible has that in a footnote. Healthy doctrine, not sick doctrine, not weak doctrine, sound doctrine, like a strong foundation, not sketchy, like a carnival ride. We don't let your kid go on. Strong and sound, okay? So the direction from Paul to Titus to deal with a sick congregation with problems is to teach healthy doctrine. That's the answer. Now, doctrine just means teaching. It's your brand of teaching. Doctrine is the way you teach what you teach and what you teach, okay? That's what doctrine is. So Paul is saying to Titus, when you get there, preach the good stuff. Give the people the steak and potatoes, not the cotton candy and the zebra-striped gum. That is the the most satisfying five seconds, and then it's it's over. It's gone. I can't believe that gum's still around. Anyway, that's not how our preaching is supposed to be. You've just on the way home. What do we even talk about today? I don't know. But I got to spit this thing out. Can I, we're, yeah, just throw it out the car window. There is a problem in our culture. You know it. I've talked about it in my preaching. We all know it. It's that there is an aversion in our day to preaching sound doctrine on a popular level. Now, yes, there are godly men who stand weakly and proclaim the truth, it is not just me, all right? Do not hear me saying, I alone, right? That's what Elijah said. There's still the 7,000 out there who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I believe that. But as far as what we see in the mainstream, evangelical mainstream, it is generally weaker than what the Bible says itself. You ever notice that? Whenever the preaching is weaker than what would happen if you just read the Bible aloud, that's bad, okay? Now, what makes something weak? What makes something weak theologically? Well, first, it could be just plain wrong. Something wrong is weak, right? A twisting of Scripture, a a blatant saying of something false. But it could also be saying vague and generic things while dancing around the issues. Platitudes and cliches and buzzwords are often used to hide the true meaning of what is being communicated. It gets harder and harder today to find people who will speak plainly about what they are saying. You ever just want to say, what are you saying, pastor? Spell it out. Spit it out. What are you saying? So I remember one of my favorite seminary classes, systematic theology. I loved it. I still love it to this day. And the reason why I found it so helpful to me in that time was because it forces you to take concrete stands on specific issues. You had to come to theological conclusions on hot-button items. You had to speak and write with clarity on what you believed. You had to learn not to be ashamed of labels. Not to be ashamed of labels and categories and statements of faith and confessions of faith. You say what you believe. When you're not sure what you believe, you say you're not sure. You say, I don't know, I'm still learning some things. And you learn what issues are worth dividing over 
and what issues are not worth dividing over. Can I tell you that in most contexts, I find it extremely helpful to say that I'm a Baptist. Why? Well, because it means something, right? If you're talking to somebody and they say, I'm a Christian, we're, we're out there and they, we could mean a lot of things, right? Now, if you say, I'm a Baptist, you've just, you just brought it down to mean something, all right? Now, what does it generally mean? I know there's bad Baptists out there. There's good Baptists too, all right? I like to think we are good Baptists. It means that we think the Bible is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient, that we ought to study it when we come to church. It means that I think baptism is for Christians who already believe the gospel. It means I think communion is a symbolic ordinance. It means I believe every Christian is their own priest who can go right to God without me. It means I take the missions of of Christ, I take the Great Commission very seriously. That should all come from just saying I'm a Baptist, right? You know what I can also say? We can, we, you can always get more down in the weeds. I'm kind of a Reformed Baptist. I'm a little more Calvinist than I am Arminian. I believe God's in charge of everything. I believe he's the first mover in our salvation. I believe he provides me with the gift of faith. And then, and only then, are my spiritual eyes opened wide to respond to him. I believe I can't lose my salvation, because if I could, I would. I believe I was born with a sin nature that prevented me from loving God until I was saved by his grace. I was dead in sin, and the Spirit made me alive to Christ. That's what I am. That's who I am. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not afraid of titles and boundaries, lines in the sand, because guess what those do? They tell you what your theology is. I think it's far more dangerous. Listen to this. This will, take you, this will take you places, all right? It's far more dangerous for a church to believe any and everything and reject all labels than to be clear about what you do and don't believe. A lot more dangerous. I think you should be able to say as a church, we love theology here. We're a theological church. Because you know what people's main issue with that is? When you say, I'm a theolo- we're a theological church, they assume, oh, then you must not do missions. But we already talked about that last week. Mission church, theological church should always go hand in hand. Don't run from theology. Don't value, don't put a high value on a lack of study. It's okay to be a Bible nerd. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to, to say, I'm a theologian. R.C. Sproul said, everybody is one. You're either a good one or a bad one. It's okay to read dead guys' books. It's all right. I can say, I can go all the way down categories. I lean toward amillennialism and cessationism and complementarianism. I'm theologically conservative. I am not woke. You know that. I affirm the Baptist faith and message, 2000, and the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And I've publicly signed my name, you could find it out there, to the Dallas Statement on Social Justice, as well as a stand on biblical sexual morality out there. I am who I am. Those are theological stances. It's not wrong to take a stand on what you believe so that everyone knows what is and what is not sound theology. It's okay to care about that. Paul says that a strong church has sound doctrine. That means that we talk about things the Bible talks about. We don't just say things like, Well, you know, God's really big, which is okay. He is, right? 
But that kind of can be up to interpretation. We can eventually learn and grow and mature and say things like, God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and sovereign. We should use words to describe God like holiness, wrath, justice, righteousness, faithfulness. We should say that Christ provided a substitutionary atonement on our behalf and learn what that word means, that he was truly God, that he was truly man, that he is our prophet, priest, and king, our perfect intercessor and mediator. We should say that the Spirit causes regeneration in our hearts and provides the new birth. He is the one who aids us in our sanctification and who inspired the very word of God. And when people say, Pastor, I don't know those words, we don't dumb things down. We slow down and teach the words, okay? We do not discard the words. That's how a church experiences downgrade. So do not become an atheological church. A strong church loves doctrine. A strong church isn't afraid to take a stand on issues and speak when the Bible has spoken. A strong church loves to worship God in light of all of our sound theology. You know why music seems weak right now? It's not, again, because we have a music problem. It's because we have a theology problem. Weak theology breeds a low view of God which writes poor music. Do not let it be true of Calvary Hills. Demand sound doctrine. Not because we're theological snobs, but because we love, we love God so much that we want him to be studied correctly. If we love God, you will love the study of God, which is what the word theology means. That's number one. And number two. And third, a strong church is one that loves one another. That loves one another. I'd like you to go to Romans 12, 9. I want to read a passage together to set the stage for this last category. I feel like it's just a bigger explanation of what we read in 1 Peter earlier. There are so many great passages in the Bible on this topic, and I actually went back and thought of the ones that I've preached already to you. I know we've done Colossians. I know we've done Ephesians. I know I've talked about Philippians, great unity passages in all of those. And so I found one that I've not ever spoken aloud to you before, and that's in Romans 12, 9. So this is in the practical portion of Paul's letter to the Romans. He writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I really like that one. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who weep and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We'll pause there. The Bible is clear over and over that the way we love one another is a reflection of the way we love God. There is no way that we can call ourselves by the name of Christ, claim to be filled with the Spirit, and treat each other poorly. 
Verse 9 says, let your love be genuine. That word means without hypocrisy. Ah, hypocritos. John Calvin wrote, it is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love that they do not really profess. It can be difficult to find genuine, authentic people in the world who don't do things with ulterior motives. How many of y'all learned that hard lesson in life? I think we've all been there. But isn't that exactly what the church ought to be? A place where there is no games, no pretense, no secret power struggles. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let love for one another be genuine. Be real with one another. One way to show love to others is to put their needs as more valuable than your own needs. I'll tell you a leadership style of mine that I don't, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm saying I do it, and I try to pattern it after this, is that I have a policy that I don't win every argument I ever get into. When you work with people, especially in the church, you're going to encounter people who want to do things differently than you. If you have to win every argument or get your way on every single decision ever made, there's a good chance you'll get your way, but you'll be very alone. You have to let others get a win sometimes. I want you to think about that as you serve together. If you look back and say, you know, I've never lost an argument. You may think you want to celebrate for a second, but just remember there's a trail of other people on the other side of every single one of those disputes. The church is supposed to be a beautiful blend of us deferring to one another, outdoing one another in the way we show honor Guess what? This is a multi-generational church. We have people who grew up in the 1940s in this room. We have college students who grew up with an iPhone in their hand in this room. We have people from different ethnicities and cultures. We have people who have grown up Southern Baptist and are staunchly lovers of it. We have people that until they joined this church didn't know what a Southern Baptist was. We have all different preferences things that we think are just the best things since sliced bread, things we've seen at other churches that we bring here, and we just think, man, if I could recreate that, it'll be everything. And instead of thinking somehow that we can please everybody, because a lot of times when you please everybody, what you end up with is a bowl of oatmeal that everybody's just like, I can't argue with that. It's all right. Not necessarily want that. Instead of just trying to please everybody, I think that energy is best spent trying to outdo one another and showing honor to each other. Part of deferring to each other looks like training others to take over your stuff. Nobody should ever say, man, I, if I ever heard somebody say this, I'd, I would, I'd be sad at myself. Nobody should ever say, oh, Jared's in charge of that. He'll let someone else do that when you pry it from his cold, dead hands. That's not good. That's not good. That shows I don't love other people by letting others be trained to jump in and take over things that I'm doing. If someone comes to this church and tries for a year to get involved in different areas, and every time they do, they're met with a roadblock of some gatekeeper blocking their way to get involved, well, guess what? They're not coming back. Church, keep up the culture of training and delegating to other people. Cross-training is a wonderful thing. It communicates we love people when we say, come join this team be a part of this, run this, lead this. I was leading it, but you can have it if you want it. 
That's, that shows love to people who are deeply trying to use their spiritual gifts in the church. You know, something else that communicates love for each other is bearing one another's burdens. I will tell you this from experience. I am not good at that. I just want to put it out there to you. I'm not good at that. But this is what a church does. Now, I might bear somebody else's burdens. What I mean is I don't like other people to bear mine. That's what I mean. But time and time again, I'm reminded this is what a church is for. When we bring our struggles and challenges, our pain and our sorrows, our shortcomings, our downfalls before each other in our church family, we can receive comfort and prayer and accountability and support rather than isolation. We display love for one another in this. And lastly, a way that we can display love for one another that often goes unsaid, but perhaps it is the most important. If we love repenting, we will love one another. Yes, repentance is an attitude toward God first. If you've sinned, you make it right with God first. But if that sin included somebody else, you need to repent to them as well. And if and when you wrong someone, if and when, right, you wrong someone in this church, and you're either convicted by the Spirit of God or you're confronted by a person, you have an opportunity to repent. Turn from that sin and seek forgiveness and work toward reconciliation. I'm not asking you to like repenting. It's not fun, right? It's not like a weekend hobby. You go jet skiing, you repent a little. That's not, it's not fun like that. But I am saying that there ought to be something deep down in Christians where we actually love it because of what it brings about in our lives, because of how it reconnects us, reconciles us to God. Like a marriage, we ought to commit to repenting when it's tough and uncomfortable, to make sacrifices, repent when it hurts your pride. The overall tone of Jesus' ministry seems to lean toward gratuitous forgiveness, doesn't it? Rather than refusal to forgive. Again, it's better to forgive someone who maybe doesn't deserve it in your eyes as opposed to refusing to forgive in the off chance that you've diagnosed them with not deserving it. It's better to always err on the side of forgiveness. 70 times 7. So church, I want unity for this body. Deep in my heart, I want it. I want all of you to commit to unity, especially in a time of transition. And our unity comes from loving the same things together. A strong church will share its loves. If we all love and live for the glory of God as our chief aim, we will be stronger in our shared love together. If we love sound theology and commit to study it and know it and to worship God in the full revelation of his character, we will be stronger in that shared love. If we love one another and value each other higher than ourselves, then we will be stronger in that shared love. 1 John 3.18 reminds me of this. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you would, pray with me.